What's up, everyone? Dustin Bass here with just a quick little request. If you enjoy our podcast, could you do us a huge favor and leave us a rating and a review? The reason we ask you to do that is because when we get more ratings and reviews, more people are able to find the show. So if you're enjoying the content that we're putting out, we would greatly appreciate if you helped spread the word. So leave us a rating, leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Thanks so much. And let's get on with the show. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. And that's what I would like to happen to you, Alan. I'd like to hear no more from you. Hello, everyone. I'm Dustin Bass. And that is Alan Joaquim on the other side of me. Can Looking I talk? Strangely. Can I talk? Can I talk here? Yeah, go All ahead. Right. All right. Yeah, I am at, I'm Alan Joaquin. Yes, you are. And you're handsome, you're clever. And I'm really, really, really ridiculously good looking. There you go. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a great show for you today. We are going to be talking about William Shakespeare. We've got um, a guest coming on the show, Professor Carrie Lee Bush Hammonds. Uh, she is a professor over at Sam Houston State University. And she has been teaching William Shakespeare for, I want to say, about a decade or more. Um, so she is going to be able to answer a lot of our questions and give us just a rundown of who William Shakespeare was. You looking forward to this, man? I am looking forward to this. You're a big uh, fan, right? Of uh, Shakespeare or us? <laughs> <laughs> Both. Both. Yeah, I, I, I love Shakespeare. Um, you know, it's... When I read, it, I have to sit there. You can't just read through it. Mm -mm. You have to sit there and say to yourself, what is he trying to say? Yeah. That's, and it makes you think in that level. And you're like, oh, wow, you know, that's a pretty clever way of saying something. Mm -hmm. You know, he reminds me of people who are passive aggressive. Yeah. Yes. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I'm glad he reminds me, reminds you of me. That's fantastic. <laughs> wow. I've never thought of myself on uh, the level of William Shakespeare, but yeah, I'll take that um, from a man who is a modern-day Edward de Vere. Who, me or uh, you? <laughs> are you calling me uh, you know, someone who takes credit for when they're not, you know, what's, what, what's no, that? I'm not going to help I, you, you know, genius. I, I, don't, I don't buy any of that. I, I think maybe she, um, she will be able to... Uh, Dispel. Dispel that one, yes. All right, but, well, uh, let's get around I, the show. I do believe huh? that. I, I think that's a revisionist history, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, we keep running into that. I think Edward de Vere is a modern-day Howard Zinn. Uh, wait, I think a Howard Zinn is a modern-day Edward de Vere. Yes, How about yes. that? Okay, I like that. That would make more sense. All right, well, let's, uh, without further ado, since we have much ado about nothing, let's go ahead and get her on the show. Uh, Carrie, how are you doing? I am good. How are y'all? We are on top of the world. Alan, still having trouble with the headphones? No, no, no. no I'm, I'm trying to th say something Shakespearean, but uh, everything that I, I can think of... I would challenge you to a battle of wits, but on I fear you were unarmed. Oh. On Shakespeare? She it's my just, favorite She just used a, a line from Shakespeare um, to answer the question. Well, you know, I... Checkmate. I, okay, all right, yes. Um, it's over. <laughs> Let me, what are you going to go... Say? You know, Ori, how, about, how about tomorrow or tomorrow or tomorrow? Oh. Yeah. All right. Creeps in this okay. petty pace from day to day mm -hmm. to the last syllable of recorded time. Uh, yeah. 
Jealous? Yeah. Okay. Well, Anyways. You, you are the Scotsman, so. I. There we go. And I am steeped in blood. Okay. Here we go. Um, all right. So we're going to be talking about William Shakespeare. This month is the month of his birth and death. Um, April. April 23rd is considered his the day of his birth. Although that's, you know, up for question. I think he was christened, correct, on the 26th of April? Correct. And he died April 23rd, uh, 1616. So, um, but that's probably what a lot of people already know, but we're going to get into who this man was. But before we do, we need to figure out who Miss Bush is. So, Professor Kerry Lee Bush Hammonds, go for it. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you um, are more or less connected to William Shakespeare. Um, so I actually went to prep school when I was a kid and I went to, uh, Westminster Christian Academy and the Bible that we had to read was King James. And I, I guess I just read it from such an early age that it made sense to me. And, um, the first play that I read was Romeo and Juliet and I understood it because I was used to the language and I just found the language beautiful and, um, because of that, literature was just something I I always found exciting. I loved um, essentially exploring different time periods and social classes and um, just different ways of thinking, um, you know, throughout high school and everything. And um, I had um, an awesome professor my freshman year of college um, who kept – Every time I would see him, he would ask me if I changed my major yet to English, um, and I would always say no. And about two years into it, um, I did. I changed to English, and I got my bachelor's in English and tried to do secondary education classes and absolutely hated it. So I went into sales, and within about six months, I was like, mm, there's nothing interesting here. So after that, I started teaching um seventh through ninth grade English and went on to get my certification and taught, uh, in a private school for eight, nine years, seventh through 12th grade. Uh, but I specialized with the senior English with British literature and I went forward to get my master's degree and I focused on medieval romantic and Victorian. Um, but I've always had a soft spot for Elizabethan and, um, I am finishing up my second year teaching now at Sam Houston State, uh, teaching English 1301 and English 1302. Ta-da. All right. And so you think you know William Shakespeare better than me? Probably. (laughs) Oh, Billy Shakespeare. Well, we'll we'll see. I've got plenty of cliff notes sitting around here, so I don't want to hear it. (laughs) Oh, goodness. It's beautiful. That's all you need. I already took my comps. I don't need... (laughs) That's... uh, Cliff notes is pretty much... The equivalent of reading a Shakespearean play. I, I mean, you know, you know, really, if you think about it, and especially uh, if you don't think about it, well, it's that, probably best if that you don't. Was, uh, that was the way many people passed uh, seventh grade and eleventh grade uh, English. <laughs> That's true, <laughs> seventh and eleventh. Yeah, we had. Why uh, would you do that? No, I didn't. The only book that I ever read that was Cliff Notes at the time. But why would you time, choose seventh and eleventh? Because that's when they. We had those. We had those types of um, classes. Oh, I didn't. Really? I didn't pick the criteria. They did. <laughs> all I, I know is tenth and twelfth. Well, all I remember is this: that uh, I, I what was that book? Um, the Great Gatsby. 
at the time, I didn't appreciate it for what it was. So I mm. did read the, the Cliff Notes, and that right. was the only one. But then I read it several years later, and I loved it. So. Right. It's a classic. Yeah. But yeah, that I passed uh, because of Cliff Notes for that book. Yeah. Because I, I was like, this is boring. Couldn't get it. But Shakespeare... I mean, Macbeth, I remember uh, Macbeth was always my favorite. In fact, um, we saw, I, what do you, have you seen the Roman Polanski version of uh, Macbeth? I have not. Have I not? am not a big fan of watching the plays on film. Okay. All right. I like, I like what my imagination does with the stage directions better. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I still, I mean, every once in a while, I still like to see something, and for me, that that made me enjoy Macbeth even more. But uh, that's fair. Yeah. I did see Macbeth at the Globe, though. Does that oh. count? Oh, Hello. oh yeah, yes. That that's 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 a step above uh, Roman. Sitting. That's a step above Roman Polanski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of things are a step above Roman Polanski. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, he was given a standing ovation at the Oscars. So, <laughs> isn't that sick? Anyways, all right. Moving on from your personal hero, um, let's go and discuss who William Shakespeare is. So, who is William Shakespeare, and before he became the man that we know now, who was he before he became known as the great playwright? So he was actually born in Stratford-upon-Avon, um, which was a kind of a more rural community. Um, it was smaller. His, his parents were John and Mary. And what many people don't realize is that Mary Arden was actually a pretty step-up in marriage uh, in social class. And so John did pretty good when he married her. And uh, he actually was kind of a, a, a badass guy for a while, uh, pardon my language, but he was very successful. He, um, let's see, he not only had a profitable marriage and he was a prosperous member of the community, but he was also a really successful tradesman and he dealt a lot with um, wool. He was a merchant. He built a pretty substantial business and uh, acquired quite a bit of property. Interestingly enough, he uh, ran into some hard times and he lost most of it, actually had to mortgage some of his wife's property. And you can see um, if, if you kind of dive into John's business history, you actually see some of the Merchant of Venice in it um, because he definitely started doing some loans with a really, really high interest and he got in a lot of trouble for that. Um, and all of this was going on while William Shakespeare would have been living there. And even though he would have been, you know, five, six, seven during some of this, he definitely saw because um, his dad even applied for his coat of arms, which would have distinguished him as a gentleman and not a common man. Um, but he actually stopped that application because I guess you could say life hits and he started losing things. And he also stopped attending the council meetings in the community and he stopped going to the church. Uh, some speculate it was because a lot of times debtors would actually show up at the church to try to be like, Hey, you owe us <laughs> money. Um, and so he was hiding out from them, but uh, there, there's just a lot, to be said, I guess, from all of that, from his parents that he saw, that he witnessed. Um, as far as education goes, he probably went to the grammar school there. And this is where it gets tricky because many people are like, oh, he wasn't formally educated. 
but the monarchs actually distinguished what the curriculums were. And he would have attended the school during the time of the Elizabethan curriculum. And she actually took out math and science for the most part. And they focused on Latin, on rhetoric, on literature, on histories. Um, so he, by the time he ended his grammar school education, he would have been well-versed in Latin. He would have been very well-read. I mean, Ovid, the Aeneid, um, Virgil, all of these. Um, and he would have a pretty good grasp on history as a whole, especially within um, England. So it's kind of interesting. Um, he then disappeared. Well, yeah, he disappeared for a while. Um, he got married at 18 uh, to a woman named Anne Hathaway, and there was a whole lot of drama with that because traditionally in this time, they would essentially announce their engagement in church, and they had to do this several times and make sure that nobody contested it because arranged marriages were still a thing, and they didn't do that. They actually applied for a, a waiver of this whole ordeal, uh, which actually would have cost some money and some travel as well. Um, and on the records, there's two Anne's. Um, one, her last name is Hathaway. The other, starts with a W, I have it written down, um, Watley. And so there's a lot of theories surrounding that. Was Anne Hathaway and Anne Watley the same person? Was she a widow and that was her maiden name? Um, were they two different people? Did Shakespeare love Anne Watley but had to marry Anne Hathaway, who was knocked up, by the way, and um, eight years Shakespeare's senior? So there was a lot of drama surrounding that. And there's two different records. One is in Stratford and another is in um, Temple Grafton, um, which doesn't seem like it would play that big of a role, but one is a pre predominantly Catholic area, um, area, and the other one has a lot more to do with uh, like the Church of England and Protestantism. So there's a lot of drama surrounding all that. But there was a big chunk of about seven years uh, where Shakespeare just kind of disappeared. So really between like 13 or 18, there's not really any record of him, but there is a legend that he got caught essentially killing a deer and a rabbit and some other things. And he fled to London and was an apprentice. Um, or before that, he cared for horses outside of a playhouse. So there's there's a whole lot of interesting stuff that people don't totally know, but there's some pretty good evidence to possibly support it. Um, so it, even in uh, there's a scene in The Merry Wives of Windsor where it's clear that Shakespeare's recalling his own experience in grammar school and the boy in it is even named William. And um, again, during that gap, many scholars believe that that's when he studied intensely to hone his craft um, and was an apprentice. So anyway, there's that. So what was the deal with... Um the killing of the deer and the rabbit is that because of the class system i think it was, was like was probably the king's forest? no it was um well and again it's it's a legend we don't know that that's totally true um but let me see does this, I know I does have, this a, have anything I to have do with note. the fact that the forests belong to the king and you were not allowed to hunt which i know the land yeah the land did yes it okay. had to do with that um which he really <laughs> legally couldn't have gotten in trouble for because he was a kid, but the landowners or, or 
or whatnot, the ones renting the land didn't always hold those laws. So, yeah. So he could have still. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot with, with all that. Uh, he did have three kids. He um, obviously, um, he had one because she was pregnant before they were married, uh, Susanna. And then uh, about two years later, they had a set of twins, Hamnet and Judith. And they were named after some really close friends of theirs who also were the twins' godparents. Um, sadly, Hamnet died when he was about 11, though. And um, it kind of came full circle because about that time, he not only was Shakespeare, not only was very prominent um, and wealthy, uh, it wasn't just that he was known for his place. He also owned a stake in the globe. He owned shares in the property and the company and the, he, he became a fairly wealthy man in his own right. And he understood money and how to make money and what to do with it um, from watching his father. But um, he got approved for his coat of arms and was then classified as a gentleman, but he got, I guess, the knowledge that this had all gone through about three months after Hamnet died. So it was kind of that additional stab that now he has this legacy and family name to pass on, but he no longer has a male heir. And he shadows that in Macbeth when he talks about um, a fruitless crown. Um, so you kind of see, you see a lot of his personal things come through in his play, yeah. in his plays. So how many plays and sonnets, how, how much did he write? Uh, he's attributed for 37 plays and over 150 sonnets and poems. Hmm. What have you ever done, Alan? I wrote a couple of articles in the Epic Times. <laughs> you trash. Anyways, um, so Shakespeare... Um, and we sort of discussed this a little bit or touched on it a little bit before we started recording that um, he would, you know, sort of make up words. Uh, how much did Shakespeare impact the English language? So in the Oxford Dictionary, he's attributed for about 3,000 words. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, he also, I mean, literally, if he didn't have the right word for something, he just invented it. Um, so when it comes to language, um, you know, many people say, oh, it's old English. It's not, it's actually modern English. So the spellings are a little bit different, um, and the context, but he, um, he had an immense vocabulary. Um, again, he spoke Latin, he read, he was a voracious reader. Um, he, and again, when the right words didn't exist, he just made them up. Um, some of the words that we don't think about but are attributed to him are accommodation, all-knowing, amazement, barefaced, countless, uh, dwindle, fancy-free, frugal, um, premeditated, obviously star-crossed, uh, lackluster, uh, swagger, that's Shakespeare, because uh, instead of saying cousin, he, he had some of those slangs, assassination. Um, so there's there's just a ton. And he also, he made some words that, and put them in different places. Uh, I always joke, you know, people are like, oh, I'll Facebook you. I'm like, when did that become a verb? But he did that. So saying something like, you know, he fathered a child, um, making that word father a verb. Uh, that was something he did. So even though he didn't invent the word, he did 
change the use of it. Um, and of course, he had words that he made up that didn't really stick. Uh, he made up a word convive, which meant like to feast together. That's not one that's still used. And um, my favorite is he made up a word called smile it, which is a little smile, but it didn't stick. Well, he did what he could. Yeah. Right? <laughs> what an accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. He, he that... also changed yeah. connotations and words like um, for saying the word accident. He also made it mean occurrence or chorus. He also made it mean a single person who comments on events um, like entertain. He also made it to mean receive into service. Hmm. Um, and obviously the word wit, um, he made it also mean mind and intelligence. Interesting. Hmm. So that's why you wanted to... Uh... Battle of Wits. Battle of Wits there. Yeah. Battle of Wits, yep. Mm-hmm. yep. And he made up names, too. Yeah. Do you think that it was, um, that he was able to actually make those words stick so much because he was able to demonstrate it through his plays? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you figure even then, what was interesting about his plays when he had the Globe, it cost a penny to enter. And then, of course, there were always upgrades. But the entry to the play was one penny. And I... I don't believe that was an accident. I believe he designed that. He had a share in it. He was one of the owners. So he got to dictate those things. And he wanted people of normal background and not just merchants or aristocrats or high social classes to be able to go to these plays. So it's very possible that many of these people who went to the plays were not literate. So this is the only way that they would learn these words. It's not like... They read them and remembered them. Um, and I don't think that um, that was done unintentionally. Um, you know, like I said, he knew what it was to be poor. He knew what it was to lose everything. And so it was important to him to include um, every station. I was uh, told by, I think it was one of my high school English teachers that if you went to the Globe to see a play, it wasn't like today where everyone's quiet, um, that it was more of a rowdy scene. People would um, would interject their you know, comments really loud so that the uh, actors could hear it. Um, now, is that the case or? Um, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. I think a lot of it would depend on which playhouse it was being performed because they did have some that were designed for more um, higher class. Um, but Well, this the, was at the, the Globe, Globe, I was told. The, the Globe, here's why that wouldn't surprise me. There's no record that the Globe had any kind of like toilet facilities. So um, another thing with that is when um, plays were performed at the Globe originally, especially for lower class, um, they didn't typically have intermissions. They just went straight through the whole play. So they probably did get yelled at or people were getting up and down or, or whatnot because they didn't have those breaks. So I, I haven't heard that, but that wouldn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you uh, start yelling. <laughs> I think that's where maybe the word heckling came in. I, I mean, even even now, <laughs> the <laughs> he probably did. Even now, they his plays at the Globe are still fairly interactive. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the way that they're written, they include audiences. I mean, um, you know, it, the chorus of Romeo and Juliet, they come out and tell you what they're going to talk about and say, you know, this is now the two hours traffic of our stage. So they they do include 
you know, with the asides and soliloquies and, you know. Yeah. So it makes sense. So Shakespeare writes a lot about, you know, he brings in a lot of history, brings in a lot of the monarchs. How, and you sort of referenced his knowledge of history by being taught that um, extensively when he was a kid. So how much did his knowledge of history, and in particular that of the monarchs, uh, play in his you know, ability to write those plays? Well, what's cool is he was pretty tight with Queen Elizabeth. Hmm. So even in his play, uh, Henry the Eighth, uh, he gives this depiction of her. She had, she had died just before this, and he essentially eulogizes her in the play. So, I mean, by, you figure by 19, uh, 19 oh my goodness, <laughs> nope, 1592, mm-hmm. um, he was already fairly well known, but he was also performing essentially private plays for the queen, uh, which was pretty impressive. And, you know, by 19, or God did it again, <laughs> 1594, you know, he was extremely well known. Um, he was a sharer in the, the Lord Chamberlain's men. Um, he, he had these really well-known patrons um, with the Lord Chamberlain, with Queen Elizabeth, and then later with King James um, as it changed over to the King's men. And so he, he had access to some pretty close connections to the monarchies. So, I, I mean, I, I think that definitely comes into play. And then you can also see that he, some things he just was like, I'm pretty sure this is how this went. And he went with it. I mean, they're, they are histories, but at the same time, they're f- fictionalized. So it's, it's important to keep that in mind with those. So he was very, uh, as you said, he was somewhat close to Queen Elizabeth. Um, but, you know, uh, people often say, or historians will say, or people who, you know, scholars on Shakespeare will say that, you know, during that time, you had to really watch what you said and what you wrote about the monarchs. Otherwise, oh, absolutely. you lose your head. Um, yes. How, how did he deal with that? Um, did he, was so there censorship, did, personal censorship, or how did he deal with that? He knew her. He, uh, here's the thing. It's interesting that, you know, many people say, well, he never loved his wife and he didn't know love and all this, but there's no way he could have written the way that he did if he didn't know what that was. It, perhaps he was a womanizer. We don't know. Um, but he n- knew how to flatter Elizabeth. And, um, you know, one of the the earlier times she was at one of his plays and essentially walked by and he was actually portraying a king and she, you know, kind of bowed to him, but he didn't return that bow. He didn't acknowledge her and it kind of, you know, ruffled her feathers a little bit. And so she walked by again and she dropped her handkerchief. So then he bows, picks her handkerchief up and I can't, for the life of me, remember what he said, but whatever it was, it made her happy. And she was like, Oh, okay, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so he definitely made her look good in what he wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very important. But I also think he liked her yeah. as a person. Like, I mean, she, she did a lot of good. So Did, that, did, a, that, did that time, did his writing change from that perspective once she died? 
Ooh. You know, I'm not totally sure. I haven't really thought about that. Um, you know, James was her heir because she never married nor had children. So James was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth and Mary were cousins, and they had a huge feud their whole lives because they both thought the other one was trying to take something away and trying to rule everything. And um, they did a lot of shady stuff to one another. But but finally, at the end, Mary kind of was like, OK, look, I will surrender myself to you if you will make my son your heir. And Elizabeth went, OK. So there was definitely a, a, a disconnect between Elizabeth and James because even though Elizabeth helped raise James and he was her heir and that was all great, you know, that made him the king of England, Ireland, and Scotland, but, but Elizabeth also took the head of his mother, so he he did some things back to her. He had um, his mother buried in Westminster Abbey as well and had her tomb put pretty close and uh, the same size and everything as Elizabeth's, which I imagine would have pissed her off greatly. So I, I would assume that he, Shakespeare would have had to have toned down his writing over Elizabeth a little bit, but... Well, there was something that, you know, um, Dustin just mentioned about, like, a censorship or something similar to that. Um, and let me ask you if, you're, if you know anything about this, because I have not uh, seen anything that backs up this story. James I asks Shakespeare to write a play about his background. And when he wrote Macbeth, I believe James was uh, a descendant of... About his of, what? I'm sorry. About um, his background, how he came to Oh, okay, be. background. Right. Gotcha. Now, my understanding, and you, you're going to have to correct me on any of this, uh, he was descended uh, from Banquo. But in the play, and Banquo and Macbeth assisted in the murder of Duncan. But if you mm -hmm. look at the Macbeth play... Don't, uh, Banquo is seen more of the victim and not the co-assassin. I mean, what's your thoughts? Yeah, in in the play, Banquo doesn't have anything to do with the death of Duncan. Correct. Um, but he is a part of the the prophecy, and so whether or not he would have gone completely against Macbeth is up for question. But one of the prophecies is that Macbeth will be king, but he will have no kings. Banquo will not be king, but he will have kings. So essentially it could reference Elizabeth as Macbeth and Mary as Banquo. Mm -hmm. But um, I can see that parallel, but it's not actually one I've ever looked into. Okay, because I, I was given the impression that um, being a descendant of Banquo, that uh, he didn't want... Uh, to allude to the fact that one of his ancestors was, um, you know, a murderer or anything of that mm -hmm. sort, right? Regicide, if that's the, I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah, I mean that would make sense. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't discredit it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I have to look that's that up. It's a pretty up. strong play too. So yeah, that's that's. Yeah. I think I think Macbeth for me is my my favorite. Yeah, I love Macbeth. I yeah, cannot. It's... I mean, I can watch it uh, or read it over mm -hmm. and over again. I just love it. <laughs> I like I like, uh, the, I like that Roman Polanski movie. It's, I I haven't seen. You mentioned to me there's a there's one there was that came another. out about four years ago. Yeah, which I have not seen. Matthew uh, Michael Fassbender. Okay. And I don't know if you've seen that, Carrie. Um, I haven't, but I want. I actually want to. But I I loved it, um, and I thought Michael Fassbender was 
an incredible um, Macbeth. Um, but yeah, Macbeth and Hamlet. I like, I love Hamlet because one, he's just sort of this, <laughs> I don't even want, I mean, I don't know what to call him, like anti-hero sort of thing, but everybody dies at the end, you know, and it's somewhat humorous and, but like of a extremely dark humor. Um, but yeah. Um, so you Othello's like that too, though. He put some really dark humor in Othello. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a, one of the plays that, and now the, for some reason, the, the name has, uh, left my memory, but it is about, um, the twins, like the, the twin, like servants and then the twin, like the identical servants. And oh, oh um, no, never mind. But yeah, it's a comical play. Um, and I think I'd referenced that about a year ago on, on here, but yeah, it's, it's short, but it's hilarious. Um, but you know, no, he did, he was able to, to transfer from tragedy to comedy. Um, and then like we were saying, like with dark humor, you know, combine the two. Um, and what would you say, was he sort of like one of the first to, to do that type of, um, playwriting or, so drama started way before him mm-hmm. um, and, and comedy it did as well. But what he really did kind of coin was the whole tragic comedy genre. Right. Yeah. Um, so that wasn't really done. Most things prior to this were, I mean, yes, they were written for humor. The Canterbury Tales. Mm-hmm. There's undeniable that parts of that are just absolutely hilarious. Um but Chaucer was very specific. It wasn't just for entertainment. It was also to depict issues. It was a, a satire even. Um, so it it wasn't just tragedy or wasn't just comedy, but it also wasn't combined. He separated these stories. Mm-hmm. So um, I think Shakespeare is probably really the, the first to really kind of combine those. Okay. So you said, um, we've mentioned the Globe Theater on here so far uh, from way back when, but you said that you have actually gone to see a play at the Globe Theater. What is that like? Oh, it's amazing. So I've seen mm-hmm. two. Uh, I saw Macbeth, and that was the second one, and um, probably every nerdy English teacher's dream, you know, sitting there about to watch Macbeth, and of course I have the most precious little high school girl, you know, from London sitting next to me and, uh, you know, talking to her parents beforehand. And she's, they're like, Oh, well, she's going to read Macbeth in school next year. Um, you know, and, and so I'm like, Oh, well, I've taught this, you know, I love this. And, uh, so throughout the play, she's asking me questions. And so I'm getting to kind of give her, her, the footnotes, so to speak, or the behind the scenes or helping her understand motives or who's who as we're going through the play. And her parents are like, please leave her alone. I'm like, you don't understand. This makes me so happy right now. (laughs) Um, So that was absolutely amazing. Um, But the other really cool one is we we did a midnight showing of a Midsummer Night's Dream. Hmm. Uh, So it started at midnight and it, it was definitely... Um, a little off color, but in a, in a fun way. And it was hilarious. Um, I mean, a, a Midsummer Night's Dream is hilarious anyway, but these guys did such a phenomenal job. And, you know, with it being that midnight showing, everybody's kind of delirious too. And it, it was, it just added something, I guess, to the experience, but just knowing 
know, it's kind of sad because, no, that wasn't the exact same theater, but it was built to the same specifications. It was in the same spot. So there's something so nostalgic, I guess, about just sitting there and being like, he, he was here. Like, this is living history. This is, you know, something that not everybody gets to experience mm-hmm. and something that I had wanted to do for so long. It was definitely a bucket list item. Um, luckily the rebuilt version does have bathrooms. Um, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but, but I've, you know, I've, I've seen Shakespearean plays uh, in Houston and uh, in different places, but it, it doesn't compare. Yeah especially walking, you know, you, you end the play at 3am and there's no cabs or anything. So you just have to walk back to your hotel. And so you're walking essentially in front of the tower of London and big Ben's chiming at, you know, three o'clock in the morning and there's no one else out You're you know, on the London bridge. And you're just like, this is one of those moments Mm -hmm. that can't be translate you back. Yeah. Like this, this can't be taught, Mm -hmm. you know? So it was Very pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so if someone, let's say one of our listeners, uh, has never read a Shakespeare play, which one should be the first one that they should read? So I'm torn. Mm-hmm. Tragedy, I would go with Macbeth, hands down. I feel like it's really pretty straightforward, easy to read, Um but at the same time, it has so much that it keeps your attention, you know, between witches and prophecies and, but the characters aren't overwhelming. Um, and even the insults, I mean, Lady Macbeth telling him to, you know, she challenges his manhood multiple times and tells him to screw his courage to the sticking place. I mean, even if you're not one that loves that language, you understand that she's literally being like, you're not a man um, to him. So I think Macbeth is a great place to start. But um, for those that don't like it when everyone dies at the end, um, uh, The Taming of the Shrew, it's hilarious. And it ends well. Um, And it's, I think, fairly easy to understand. And I know, I know that most people would say, oh, Romeo and Juliet, because it's so well known. But there's so many contextual issues that are not, taught for Romeo and Juliet that people are immediately just, Oh, it's just a tragedy. Oh, this is ridiculous. That's not real. And I feel like the context needs to be taught for you to really understand and appreciate the amazing Romeo and Juliet will always have my heart, but, um, and what would, what would be the context that people would need to know before getting into Romeo and Juliet? I would say there's two main things. One, the age, you know, people look at them and, and they say, well, you know, she was, you know, 13 and he was what, 16, 17. But I think if you relate that into modern terms, she's closer to 23, 24, and he's closer to 28. You know, if, if you kind of take that into a modernization, but also, um, you know, they're like, oh, but this all happened in three days. Well, yeah, it's a play. Um, it's not like they can drag that out or, you know, and it was written in the 1500. So it's not like, you know, they can go add all this makeup and make it look like they didn't have that then. Um, and not to mention lifespans were a lot shorter. So you had to hurry up. Um, you know, it wasn't, courting wasn't the same as what we think of it today. But, um, 
at the same time, the religious context isn't really highlighted nearly as much as it should. You know, Juliet marries Romeo and everybody's still okay with that until he gets exiled. And she's like, well, I need to die. And people are like, oh, she was just this silly teenager who, you know, threatened her life because she didn't get her way. Uh, No, 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 no. And I think that's the part that people mess up the most. Um, Juliet was a woman and Verona and, you know, (laughs) the 1400s. And it's like, well, um, not the 1400s, but um, she didn't have the opportunity of saying, well, I'm going to go make my own life. I'm going to go get a job and I'm going to get my own place and I'm going to make my own decisions. Women didn't hold jobs. They didn't take care of themselves. They couldn't own property. Um, not to mention it was set in Verona, Italy, which was predominantly Catholic. And what they believed was once you are married, your soul is married. And If you commit adultery in any way, you are damning your soul to hell and there is no coming back from that. That was their belief. So when her her father presented her with marrying Paris uh, and she tried to refuse or delay it, he told her, you have one of two choices. You can either do what I said and marry Paris or I will sell you to my friends. What that meant was she would be a prostitute. So I'm pretty sure if marrying Paris and having a relationship with him was adultery, that, um, you know, selling sex for money would probably be considered the same. So it wasn't just that Juliet was saying, oh, I only want to be with Romeo and no one else. But she was also saying, I want my soul to live internally in heaven and I don't want to damn myself to hell mm-hmm. and I don't have another option. Yeah. But so with that, I th- now Catholics... Um, they do believe that suicide is a damnable um, sin, correct? Correct. But you also have to take into context that a, a big part of Shakespeare's um, knowledge came from Latin. And, you know, you look at Julius Caesar, you look at, um, you know, some of the different Roman uh, plays and, and works, and they're still in, intermingled at this time. Um, so, yes, now that's definitely a huge belief in Catholicism, but Roman Catholicism was still quite intermingled. And so if it came down to her being forced into idolatry or into, um, not idolatry, sorry, um, Mm. (laughs) into, into this life of sin. Well, I mean, essentially, (laughs) or, um, or essentially making herself a martyr for her cause, she's going to choose that one. And, you know, the Romans believed that sacrificing yourself for the right reason mm-hmm. was something of honor. Now, just sacrificing yourself because, you know, whatever, not so much. But if it. It was, if, if it was for that true, genuine purpose, that it, there was honor in it. Like Godfather Part 2? Kind of. Yeah. Hmm. Remember okay. that? I or like yeah. uh, was it Frankie uh, Four Angels or Four yeah. Fingers or whatever his name was? His, uh, I don't think it's Frankie no. Four Fingers. I know. I think that's, Frankie. I think that's Snatch. Yeah, that's Snatch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah pretty close. Like that's the modern day. Yeah, but he called them some. Uh, Robert Duvall called them something. Frankie uh, Four Angels. Or yeah, something. something like that. Yeah. But yeah, uh, doing the the suicide to protect your family. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways. Uh, I wanted to that's ask. That's a good you, rabbit trail, though. Yeah. I like that. I wanted to ask <laughs> you the uh, um, 
I'm a I'm a big history buff, but I had always wondered if in the movie in God, what do I keep saying movie in the plays Henry V, the Saint Crispin's Day speech, and in Richard the Third, um, Richard's comment, uh, "My horse, my horse, uh, or a horse, a horse, a king, my kingdom for a horse." What uh, what can you tell us about those? Were were they actually said, uh, whether word for word or something very similar? So the first one, honestly, I have, I have no idea. Um, those aren't these aren't the ones that I've really studied so much um, with the context and the backgrounds and everything. Um, I would, like I said, I, I would be really shocked if Richard the Third said that exact line he could have very well said something similar. You know, we think of, you know, give me liberty or give me death being a direct quote, but my horse, my horse, a kingdom for a horse is an iambic pentameter. And so unless Richard III was a, a poet um, and spoke that way intentionally, the chances of him saying exactly that and the fact that it it's a line that's attributed to Shakespeare, not so much to Richard III, makes me think that it probably was something Shakespeare dramatized a bit. Um, like I said, there, there could absolutely be truth to it. And, and I'm just, this is my thought process. I have not done any research on this whatsoever, so I don't know. But um, I would be kind of surprised if that was an exact phrase. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great speech, the, the, the Henry V one. Mm-hmm. And I would think, that yeah, that one and that one I don't know. The Richard the Third would be more along what Gandalf it's, it's would like say. It's doomed. It's Run, just, it's, you fools! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but the the, I mean, yeah, with Richard the Third, it's it's like there, there's that doomed yeah. feeling, like he's uh, acquiesced to uh, his doom. Mm-hmm. But the Henry the Fifth one, I uh, I just love that, and I always use that as a motivation when the odds are against you. What do you mean? Have you read the words? Yeah, but I mean, when you're, what do you, when stand you stand in front of the mirror and no, just like no, quote no, no. it? No, no, Let's say, for instance, you are in a situation. Alan, I can do that. The odds are against no. you this morning, my friend. When when the situation is <laughs> looking bleak and you have all these odds against you, that when you have victory, that's the victory is going to be that much sweeter. And those who are say with you, the band of brothers. The, those who are with you in the project or the endeavor will be your brothers compared to people who were not there for you. <laughs> who does number two work for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, like, let's say you and I, if we become famous and then people want to tag along us later on, I'll be like, no, no, Dustin is my brother. You're just tagging along because of who we are. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of <laughs> the great ones. Yes. <laughs> Rising above. Oh God, have mercy! Well, I think I think I think, in my opinion, that it had a heavy influence on um, Thomas Paine when he wrote *The Crisis*. Yeah, I really do because it's it's very similar. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So you've said that you don't watch the movies, um, the movie renditions of these, but there have been a lot of them uh, put out. Would do you have one that? is your favorite or you're like, you know what? I don't watch them. They're all trash. I have one. I have one. And it's ridiculous because they don't even kill the right people in the end. I just want to make sure that it's not Romeo and Juliet with Leo DiCaprio. It is. Oh God have mercy. It is. To be fair though, it came out when I was 11. And so that was my first visual experience of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. 
I've and heard it's actually really good. I've never seen it. It's amazing. It is amazing. They do not kill Paris in the end, though, um, mm-hmm. which is very tragic. But I do like that they also don't make Paris out to be a villain. He's likable. I mean, he's played by Paul Rudd, so who wouldn't like Paris? But um, and, and Paris was a likable guy. But um, so they, they do screw up some of that. But I feel like the, the two that they cast at that particular time did a great job of embodying the innocence of Romeo and Juliet. Um, so I, I do love that one. I will still watch that one. I'll just stop it before they screw up the end. <laughs> you stop it early. That's like my dad. He watches the very beginning of Dumb and Dumber, and then he'll stop. <laughs> That's my well, dad's like, it, experience. experience. And you you got to give them. They... they they did it was a modern adaptation right it's like in california or something mm-hmm. but um they did some pretty cool things um you know with the guns you know they labeled them longsword so they kept the language pure yeah. um and what i thought was really clever was their shout out essentially to queen mab um in the film they pretty much treat it as like i would assume acid um it's a pill it's a, it's a drug but uh queen mab was uh, like a, a sorceress and she was kind of evil and she would screw with people's dreams and make them do things and she kind of was along the lines with like Merlin and, and stuff. So, uh, so I, I think they were like, what do we do with this whole part? And they were like drugs <laughs> and it actually worked really well. So kudos to them for figuring that out. Kudos mm. for, um, introducing the you know, <laughs> epidemic what that a- we're running into with all these drugs. Yeah. <laughs> no, too much. Yeah, it's just too, <laughs> too soon. Reach. Too soon. It's a reach. Yeah. So, Carrie, why um, for the younger generation, uh, kids in high school, kids in junior high, even in college, why is it important for people to know Shakespeare's works? He evolved the language. Our language today is what it is because of William Shakespeare. Um, our he's. No, you know, known for evolving drama, comedy, the tragedy comedy. Uh, he influenced Charles Dickens, John Keats, Herman Melville, Maya Angelou. Um, he gave females intelligence and helped you to see. I mean, even what we were talking about with Juliet earlier, like you, you know, I know um, looking at literature through a feminism lens is is huge right now, and being able to now see that and see Juliet as saying, you know what, I can take my own fate into my hands, you know, or um, seeing the the depression and things that Ophelia went through and different things like that, or Portia, and just, she was light years ahead of everyone else, um, from the Merchant of Venice. And so he, he gave females in his plays this great intelligence and in um, some really unique ways. Um, so I, I think that you know, right there. And partially maybe because of Elizabeth, but, um, you know, language today is still evolving, right? We say things like, Oh, um, you know, so-and-so Facebooked me or tweeted me. I don't even know. Um, Google it, you know, (laughs) Google it. Yeah. Google it. And Google wasn't necessarily meant to be a verb, but it is now. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and he did that. He, um, he took nouns and put them as verbs, you know, saying so-and-so father to child father wasn't originally used like that. You know, he has one line that says, um, 
he childed and I fathered. <laughs> it was like, what? Nice. But it, yeah, it worked. Um, I've childed. So, <laughs> exactly. So there's, there's the language reasons, but he's also absolutely hilarious. Um, he makes so many inappropriate jokes in his plays. If you get them, um, one of my favorite things is when he's like, I bite my thumb at you. And I used to teach that to my sophomores and they, you know, what does that mean? I'm like, well, it's Shakespeare's way of flipping you off. So then my sophomores would go around school biting their thumb at people. And it was always this big joke. Cause they always knew like, don't tell anybody younger than you what that means make them wait and so you know we were at a k-12 through school so my seventh eighth ninth graders why are they biting their thumbs and then you know midway through sophomore year we get to that point and now they're like oh my gosh these guys have been flipping me off for the past three years um so you know all of these different things but it it all boils down to experience you know history is great history is a skeleton it's the bones Literature, literature is the skin tone, the eye color, the hair, the clothes, the accent, the way a person walks. Literature is what brings life to those bones and lets you see things. And um, I had a student named Paul, uh, and I only had him one year, and uh, he had had a heart transplant when he was in ninth grade, and he loved basketball, and he wanted to play, but because of really stupid rules for high schoolers, he wasn't allowed. And, um, you know, we, we, my students read a lot their senior year. And he asked me one time, especially why do you make me read all these? I said, because I want you to see the world. And I was one of those things that I honestly don't think I came up with. I think God just gave me that here, say this, because a few years later he died. And all I could think about when I was at his funeral was he got to still travel. He got to still see all these things because he did. He read and then he would bring other books in the class and be like, I read this one. And we'd talk about it. And, you know, people don't necessarily have the means to travel. And right now we're not allowed to. But you can still experience so many things. And, you know, uh, I know a big thing on the media right now is, you know, with the Spanish flu um, and how the second wave hit harder and learn from history. Well, there's always things to learn from history. And luckily, Shakespeare wrote 37 plays. <laughs> so there's plenty to be learned. And, and all of his themes, they still matter today. They're still themes that we go through. There's still that awkwardness. There's still fighting. There's still ambition. There's still pride. There's still love. There's still jealousy. There's still debt. There's still honor all of these things still exist and I think it's worth looking at. Beautiful. Are and, you, oh, go ahead. What? Well, I was going to ask you, are you familiar with the no fear Shakespeare series? And do you uh, recommend them? No, I don't. You, you don't recommend them or you're not familiar with them? I know what they are. I just, uh, I think they keep, and this is my own personal opinion. If someone wants to get started in it and they don't know where to start, okay. But I think for a lot of students, it's the easy way out because then they don't have 
to catch all of the contextual clues and they don't have to learn all the extra things and they don't have to infer or do anything like that. So as a starting place, sure. But at some point you got to take the training wheels off. Yeah. Okay. What do you think the most important part of reading a Shakespearean play or Shakespeare's work? Is it the story or the way it's told? Oh, the way it's told. I mean, two people can tell the exact same story, but one has this just amazing skill and knows the right details to tell and captivates you and has that, you know, Sean Connery voice. And the other person is dull and Mm -hmm. monotone and doesn't describe things and doesn't give you the extra information or the jokes. And who are you going to pay attention to? So there is the theory, um, yes. which I know that you are going to love, um, yep. because I think you believe this theory. Um, what do you say <laughs> to those who suggest the Oxfordian theory that Edward de Vere, if that's how you say his name, was the yeah. actual author of Shakespeare's plays? I say pull without, your lip without... over your head and swallow. <laughs> I was going to say without swearing. I didn't swear. <laughs> I know. I know. And I appreciate it. So you are. I'm you, a mom now. I've got to get my my language a little <laughs> bit in check. There you go. So, um, okay, are you are you ready for all of my theories on this? Because I have I have notes. Can't wait. Okay. Uh, okay. So, first of all, there's this lovely term called voice, and so many people think that voice is just the voice of the characters, or which person, you put it in first person, second person, third person, whatever. Um, But voice has a lot more to do with the author than it does anything else. Um, And there are so many things. He he loves to do couplets. And it's almost like little signatures in his plays, right? It's almost impossible to reproduce. So there's that. During this time period, poetry was also more respected. Plays were a profession, but not necessarily a respected profession. It was still considered like a lower step, okay? Um, But Shakespeare achieved such success, not just as an actor, not just as a playwright, but as a businessman. He, his, his success raised him to a gentleman's status, which is huge. So let's just say that someone originally was like, oh, here, you write these. And I'm just going to, or you, you will put these in your name, but I'm going to write them. That might've worked for a little while. If it was a little, you know, racy content, you know, they didn't want, they were maybe a nobleman or, or whatever. But the second Shakespeare became a gentleman and started banking, they would have been like, hold up. And the fact that not only did Queen Elizabeth like him, but King James did too. So it wouldn't have even made sense. Who Who's going to write all of that in the amount of time that they would have had to learn and write for someone else to not only receive the recognition of the craft, but also all of the extra income? I mean, he owned stake in, like I said, in the Globe. In, and that wasn't even the only theater that they owned. Um, he bought property. He, he did very well. And I... So logically, what person is just going to sit back and be like, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to write it. You take all the credit and get all the money. Oh, and now you're a gentleman. Yeah, okay. No, 
The only person that that might would make sense would be Queen Elizabeth herself. So there's that. Um, so it, it might would have made more sense if the theory was that a woman wrote it because a woman wouldn't have been able to own property and wouldn't have been able to do any of those things legally. That might would make sense. But another man, that's no. Um, and his name was in the playbills. Shakespeare's name was in the playbills. He actually acted on the stage. And so everybody knew who he was. So my thought is if he was intelligent enough to pull off that he wrote all of these plays when wink, wink, he didn't, and to keep that air and be able to talk about them and help direct them and act in them, he sure as hell would have been intelligent enough to write them himself. So there's that. Um, so most of the actual scholars like Chambers um, is one of the most unrivaled Shakespearean scholars. And he's just like, this is ridiculous. Um, but also there's issues and, and Shakespeare did attend a, a really good grammar school. It's assumed um, there's not record of it, but there's also it changed names and there's a lot of weird stuff there, but there's issues with names of characters. There are some irregular verses. There are some rhythmic passages in prose. And, you know, we, we praise him for all of these words that he made up, but um, my three-year-old makes up words when she doesn't know the right word. I would love to think that that's because she's a genius and because she could be the next Shakespeare, but it's because she doesn't know the right word. So there's that. Um, so, but the other thing is once he wrote it, he left it alone. He was just like, okay, I wrote it. I sold it. I'm done. Um, so there's that, but there, there's too many personal parallels and references. And again, there's that whole coat of arms thing. So because he was close to Elizabeth and all that, for that all to be approved, he had to have a pretty good rapport with some pretty high up people. And if he really wasn't quote unquote intelligent enough to write all of these plays, then how would he have held his own in those situations? So there's all that. But probably one of the best is um, this other dramatist at the time, uh, Green, something Greens. He wrote this pamphlet and he was pissed. Um, and one of the things that he went off on was about an actor turns playwright and he calls him a crow and all these things and just very derogatory. But so that's evidence right there that not only had Shakespeare acted and written, but if he had done that, he was also good enough to be attacked by an envious dramatist. Um, so he also had seven years where he kind of disappeared. So he probably served as an apprentice for several years. Um, and then later on, he was the king's playwright. So I'm not entirely sure how he would have pulled that off if it wasn't really him. The other thing is there are absolutely no claims made during his lifetime that he didn't write something. In fact, the first one doesn't even come up for at least 50 years. So truthfully, it's more of a snobbish opinion of he wasn't well-educated. He didn't have that college degree. Um, so therefore he could not have been this talented. He could not have been this well-written. He couldn't have been this intelligent, which is just idiocracy because as we all know, there are people with tons and tons and tons of degrees and absolutely no common sense. So it's really just more of a snobbish opinion. Um, anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah. I have more if you need I more. So. <laughs> I'm quite certain you do. Well, I'll take that to the bank once they open. <laughs> so I think we covered your, your favorite play. Is it Romeo and Juliet? Is that your, your number one? Oh, that's so hard. 
I love Romeo and Juliet. I love Macbeth, and I love A Midsummer Night's Dream. Can I have three? So those yeah. are your top three in no yes. particular order. Go. Favorite character of the oh, um, Lady Macbeth. <laughs> She's. Yeah, I love her. Hopefully one day I'll meet a woman like that. Really well, she Stan. will. You would bury the body with you. <laughs> yeah, and then go she hang yourself. She will uh, challenge her manhood and then yeah. go crazy. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just pick her up. I love how. My I, speech. Just make sure you get a dog named Spots. So when she says out, I'll oh, There you go. Talking to the dog. Like you. <laughs> there you go. I love Bottom, too. I don't know how you can't like Bottom. He's just funny. Like, Shakespeare turned a guy into an ass. Bottom, bottom from A Midsummer Night's Dream. Right. Gave him the head of a donkey. I never read. I've never, Puck. I've never read Puck. Midsummer Puck's Night's hilarious. Dream. Yeah. Puck's a little instigator. It's like a little drunk toddler running around messing with people. Hmm. I remember Puck. He was in that TV show, A New World, from uh, MTV. <laughs> <laughs> the real world. <laughs> a okay. new world. Yeah, a real world. <laughs> what are you, Christopher Columbus? <laughs> <laughs> a real world. It was All like right. it was what killed... TV with uh, the um, real was what do you call those realistic um, what do you, reality those, reality shows? reality shows? It was like one of the first reality shows. See, the thing is with Alan and myself is when we can't come up with the word mm-hmm. and we make it up, we just blame the fact that we're geniuses. Yes, instead mm-hmm. of so much knowledge on our right. brains. <laughs> yeah, it's our default. <laughs> All right, Alan, do you have any uh, any other questions? Do you get anything? No, I mean that uh, that covers it. It's it's good to talk to someone regarding this subject because of you know I'm I'm a big fan of Shakespeare, mm-hmm. um, and I I think you know if I had kids I would insist upon them, you know, reading his works. Yeah. Well, I'll leave y'all I'll leave y'all with one little last fun little tidbit that that people claim. Um, so there's a good probability that he helped with the King James version of the Bible, and supposedly Psalms 46 was written at the time that Shakespeare was 46. And if you go 46 lines down, I think you'll see the word shake. And if you go 46 lines up or words up, I forget if it's lines or words, you'll see the word spear. And supposedly that was his little way of saying, Hey, I did this. <laughs> like Shakespeare was here. Hmm. Um, I would definitely yeah. check that out. So, anyway. Hmm. Well, I have a, I have a facsimile copy of the original, uh, King James book. Yeah. So we're there. Let me know. I don't think I've actually Six, checked it, but yeah, I, I've seen it in a I couple think it's things. Sixteen eleven is. Yeah. Then she was saying something about uh, people being smug. Snobbish. I, I can't remember. Is that what you're referring to? <laughs> Snobbish? Snobbish. Yeah. No, I'm just saying yeah. I happen. Can, if they took it out, I happen to have. Uh, an yeah. Original. Well, you also, you know, had a pipe in your hand when you were saying it. Anyways. No, I had cognac. <laughs> <laughs> so it was sixteen eleven. You, you, you little person. All right. Well, Miss Carrie, thank you very much for being on the show with us. We really appreciate it. Um, And just answering all these questions about the man, uh, William Shakespeare, the incredible playwright. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, if you've never experienced any of Shakespeare's plays, highly encourage you to check some of those out. At least jump on one of those top three uh, that Carrie mentioned. Uh, You got Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet and Midsummer Night's Dream. So if you want, you know, something harsh and tragic, Macbeth. Um, If you want something really lighthearted, Midsummer Night's Dream. And then if you want something a little bit in the middle, go with Romeo and Juliet. Um, But yeah, 
classics. It was pretty depressing, though, I thought. Well. Romeo and Juliet. Well, I thought it ended well. <laughs> All that ends All's well that ends well. So. That's, right. <laughs> That's right. All right, Carrie, thank you very much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. My pleasure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, we hope you enjoyed that discussion uh, with Miss Bush Hammonds. Um, and as we always do, we like to end on a scripture. And we just figured probably the best way to go about that would be the, the scripture, Psalm 46. Um, but there are 11 verses in there. So we're not going to read all of it, but we'll read the ones that you can pinpoint where Shakespeare is. Um, and that is verse 3 and verse 9. And it says, Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah. And then verse 9, He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaks the bow or the bow and cuts the spear in sunder. Hmm. He burns the chariot in the fire. Hmm. Which I like to think is where chariots of fire came from. You know, probably I, not. That I have, uh, I have uh, the uh, the Latin Vulgate. Mm-hmm. You can check and see if it's in there. Yeah, what's actually in there, as well as take uh, a photo and post it to Facebook. Yeah, I also have um, the the Greek versions of the Bible. Maybe it's in there too. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Um, would it be written in no, shake and spear though? What, Psalms. Was, would it be written no, in this, English? No, it'd be, be written in well, Greek. Okay, the uh, Septuagint and uh, now Psalms is that uh, is that um, some, there's Psalms and Proverbs. Some, aren't those both in the Old Testament? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Then, then you're uh, a biblical scholar. Well, okay. <laughs> if uh, for, wait a minute, wait a minute. Genesis. Would, uh, Genesis well, is Genesis. No, is it's that just, in the Old Testament? Just, I, 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 I remember, remember. Psalms was. I know. I know King Proverbs David. Was. Psalms and Proverbs. Okay, so uh, they would be in Greek. This, the because. The Septuagint was uh, from Hebrew to Greek under Ptolemy II. And, but then anything beyond that, it's going to be New Testament. Uh, there is a Greek version, but then there's also the Latin version. So, hmm. And if you have Erasmus's version, you can see both of them. Yeah. But the, um, was it the Coverdale, the Coverdale Bible and uh, the Tyndale Bible would actually answer that question because those are written in English. There you have it. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Well, that is the end of our episode on William Shakespeare. And the month of April comes to an end. Um, So if you haven't watched a Shakespeare movie or anything like that, go for it. Uh, Alan, where can people find us? They can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. We also have our very own website www.thesonsofhistory.com and you can also find us each of us both of us are on the epic times Um, i just wrote a story about the texas revolution and how it affected america's manifest destiny all right ladies and gentlemen well that's the end of the show we hope that you have enjoyed it and we will talk to you later please be safe amidst all this Reopening of the economy. Please, Lord, get it back open. You good? I'm good.